quick heads up before we get started. This episode contains strong language and adult themes. I'm Emma Clark, and this is The Title Track, a podcast about how the title of a piece of music influences how you hear it. How much does a title influence how someone anticipates music? How does a title shape our perception of a piece? And is the composer's intention ever truly heard by the audience? The title track discovers how people feel about a piece of music before they've even heard a note. I'm a music composition student. And I write my music and I present it to my teacher each week, which is a, you know, mixed experience sometimes. I kind of started to think, what actually does happen before music is even heard? So I was really interested to sort of explore that a bit. What I've done is A, write some music. You know, that's that's a prerequisite, really. And then ask some of my nearest and dearest mates what the title of those pieces of music mean to them. I wanted to come up with titles for pieces that would immediately spark a reaction in people. So I came up with a little idea of little modern horror stories, the kind of things that you hear that make you go, oh no, Uh, or maybe that's just me. But I just wanted to see how people would react and what it would spark in them and then play them the music. And I was fascinated to explore how much of our own experiences, our own memories, we project onto music. So I wrote a piece of music and I sent it to my friends, which was pretty terrifying, I have to say. I mean, actually very terrifying. (laughs) Because, well, it always is, isn't it? Because when you write music, you know, you make yourself terribly vulnerable. Everything's hanging out. Well, it is for me. So I was kind of nervous about, playing my stuff because as a composer working away in your little room on your own uh, I mean you know I wrote a lot of this stuff during lockdown and wasn't really seeing very many people wasn't really talking to many people really other than on zoom um, and when I walked the dog and across the neighbours for chit chat so I was kind of reaching out for some kind of connection I guess because I think that's what all music is really trying to find a connection between people and maybe even between you and your own mind, your own thoughts and feelings. The title I used is, brace yourself, We Need to Talk About Our Relationship. Which, I don't know about you, but it's the kind of thing that if you hear it, if somebody says it to you, well, terrible things start happening to you, don't they? You go all clammy. And you know that it's going to be a very difficult conversation. Very rarely, in my experience, do those conversations ever end particularly happily. And when you have to say it yourself, well, you have to gear up, don't you? Well, I do. I wanted to have a title that most people would have some experience of and would probably have a powerful reaction to. Let's hear what my mates had to say. Here's Taff. We need to talk about our relationship. (laughs) Does anything good ever come out of that? 
Do you come out stronger and happier and more united? Do you bollocks? Oh, when I heard Taff on the audio, that rueful laugh, full of recognition. I could hear he had some ideas of what this piece was probably going to be like. We need to talk about our relationship. Is this me and you? Are we having a relationship? I mean, a class of us mates. That's my friend Craig. And it got me thinking, maybe there is more to this relationship word? What does it mean? Is it a romantic relationship? Is it friendship? Is it, I don't know, is it flatmates? Is it work colleagues? I don't know. I was quite interested as to how people would interpret it. Here's my great pal Rick, who is also, by coincidence, the producer of this podcast. Yeah, it's one of those moments, isn't it, that it's probably hard to say that sentence and it's also hard to hear it if somebody else is saying it to you. Especially when you think things are going all right, if you think things are really good. You know, I've been in that position before. We need to have a talk about our relationship. Just stops you in your tracks, doesn't it? That doom. Oh no, this is ending. But what's interesting, like, you look back on your life and it did end for a reason. And, God, yeah, I just think that like, so many times. Just when you feel like it's the end of the world. But things turn around, they really do. I, <laughs> it's hard not to dwell on dwell on it at the time, but things get better. You find new things, new people. I love the optimism of Rick's audio there, that he's got this fatalistic, don't worry, everything always happens for a reason kind of vibe, whereas some of my other friends had a darker take. Here's Pete. We need to talk about our relationship. What you mean is you want to end our relationship. It became apparent really early on that people were sharing stuff that was really personal to them. And I felt a massive responsibility, actually, because people were sharing stuff that I would guess that they don't really share very often. So in the making of this podcast, I did have to check that people were really cool with me using it. And they all said they were, which is great and very generous of them, I have to say. Here's Taff again. I used to be a real sucker for tears. And you have to sort of learn to brazen it out. If you actually say to someone, you know, when you're lying in bed, I don't think this is, you know, working out. It takes a lot of bollocks to do that in the first place. I'll tell you what, some of those, oh, my word, I dodged a bollock with some of those, you know. And here's Shelley, who's actually written a book about her experiences of dating. So I was really intrigued to hear what she thought, because she's a proper authority on this stuff. <laughs> oh, God, it's like a feeling of dread, of, like... Oh, oh no, what's happened? I'm okay. I was okay with this relationship. Why are you not okay with this relationship? Maybe you are okay with this relationship. Maybe you want to take it further, but maybe really the reality is you don't want to and it's all about to sadly end. I asked my friends what they thought a piece of music called We Need to Talk About Our Relationship would sound like. What kind of instrumentation would it have? What kind of mood would it have? I had no idea really what they were expecting. Would they think it was going to be like a ballad? Would they think it was going to be kind of big and cinematic or like a battle? I had absolutely no idea. So here's what they said. We need to talk about our relationship should be a solo instrument because <laughs> the we is usually redundant in that sentence. We need to talk about our relationship. Well, that's a fracture, isn't it? There's something wrong. I guess maybe like, I think maybe I'd hear it like it's two different sides. It's like two people talking to each other. So you'd have like the one side, which is the 
because I'm presuming that it's a bad thing when someone's talking about a relationship. Maybe like the dark, dark side, and then there's the other side, which is a bit more emotional, a bit more like, like almost like a begging, like, please, please don't break up with me. This is, this is basically my life right now. Not right now, from the last, however long ago that this was what my life was. Thankfully, not anymore. So I think I hear two different sides of music. Bit of sadness musically for me, this. Because it's often never a happy time, but it would change into some sort of positivity, wouldn't it? Now, everything's going to be all right. Everything will be all right. And, you know, you're at the stage where you are all right. Quite happy now, actually. And, um, you know, if certain relationships in the past didn't end, God knows where I'd be. But whilst I'm here now, happy. That all happened for whatever reason. And now I'm here. It led to this moment. That's good, really. Musically, we need to talk about our relationship. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's good, actually. We could have two instruments sort of playing off each other, a conversation between two instruments, heated at times, and maybe it ends with, I don't know, an oboe and a violin having makeup sex. I don't know, whatever that sounds like. The violin could be like, <laughs> and the oboe could just be like, the concept of an oboe having makeup sex and making that noise <laughs> was quite an eyebrow raiser. But what I didn't tell my friends was what I had planned for the music. And they never asked, so I never told them. Originally, when I started this project, the idea started off as being about cartoon music because I'm fascinated by the work of people like Carl Stalling and Scott Bradley, you know, the greats who wrote cartoon music, because I love their orchestration and I love how they conveyed such clear ideas in their music. So initially, I'd wanted to sort of use this idea as a way to explore cartoon music. So what I'd actually written straight off was a piece of comic music. And the vibe I was going for was, you know, that kind of relationship where somebody's just trying too hard. You know, they're they're doing your head in a bit. It's a bit sycophantic, a bit cloying, and they just won't go. They won't take the hint. So I wanted to sort of explore that because I write a lot of stuff for choreography and for, you know, something to happen visually alongside the music. So I wanted a bit of a story in there. And the piece I wrote was a piece of cartoon music. For my mates, that turned out to be quite a curved ball. Anyway, here's the piece. Well, the first piece.
there it is. It begins with a particularly nasty waltz. I mean, you can't say it's a nice piece of music. (laughs) But I was trying to convey a particular kind of psychology in that. Anyway, Rick sent me his audio and he was literally narrating the music as he was listening to it. So I was getting an instant reaction to the music. Here he is. I'm instantly feeling good. I'm imagining sunshine, flowers by a canal. Yeah, it's happiness, isn't it? The pauses kind of make me wonder what's about to happen next. Oh, what's going on? Oh my word. I've got that film Metropolis in my head. Floodwaters rising, people running. It's chaos. Oh wow, that's the end. Wow, um, whew. That kind of caught me off guard, that second bit, actually. It started off so bright, and I felt really good, and I felt happy. And then, those couple of pauses that had me wondering about what was to follow, it all just descended into this mayhem, this commotion. It felt quite threatening, actually. But not dark, not menacing, I don't think. But yeah, something big happened. There was a big change. But it was nice, that, Emma. That was completely unexpected. Right. Okay, well, this is not what I was expecting. (laughs) That's Steve. And I was really chuffed that him and Rick weren't expecting that kind of music. Then my friend Helen really surprised me with her reaction. Helen is one of my oldest school friends, and she had such a clear idea of what she could hear in the music. Here she is. The image in my head is of uh, Georgian times and a big dance in a ballroom. And the warring couple have started off together and trying to have an argument and the dance increases in complexity and they're being whirled around the dance floor by different partners as they try to maintain this argument through whispers and through mouthing things to each other as they whirl past each other being twirled around by all of these other people. She's got scenery going on, costumes, probably wigs. She can probably even hear the dialogue. She was totally in there and she had such a clear idea of what the music was trying to convey, which wasn't necessarily what I had intended the music to convey. And that's the bit that I was finding really, really fascinating, that even though in my own head, my arrogant head, I'd thought that I'd been really clear about what the music meant and what it was doing. But clearly not. The music gets increasingly comic And at the end, it finishes with a dramatic fall down or a punch up or something like that, because they weren't able to get close enough to each other to have a proper argument with a resolution. That's what I have in my head. This reminds me of Silent Movie, Silent Movie School. Actually, I'm imagining Bugs Bunny sort of um, dancing through a field of flowers with love hearts in his eyes. Okay, now it's stopped. Oh, right, now it's gone off key. <laughs> right, so... <laughs> so, I'm yeah, I'm now picturing Bugs Bunny with love hearts in his eyes, but those love hearts have now shattered uh, because the person that he thought he was in love with is not in love with him. <laughs> okay, so now we're getting the sliding part. Oh, that was a reference. What was that a reference to? That was the death march. Oh, this is... 
This is fantastic. It's very nice. This is very, very Looney Tunes. That's great. Oh, <laughs> unexpected bit at the end. Yes, definitely. So, um, yeah, he was uh, he was at the start very optimistic and then became gradually horrified. And I think at the end it was almost like a chase. Maybe he was running away, trying to get away from the situation. So I, I, I didn't get a conversation from that, but I definitely got um, uh, love turning sour. That was good. I was so chuffed that Steve got the Death March reference. Because a lot of cartoon music uses quotation. And he actually got it. He knew. He heard it. Yowza. Helen sent me some more stuff. And when I heard it, her audio really stopped me in my tracks. Because it was just so, so powerful. Have a listen. We need to talk about our relationship. Is the background track in my head, but is hardly ever vocalised. These are the words I say to myself when you do something or when I contemplate a plan of action. They are hardly ever said, though, because I know it will open up a huge chasm and a tidal wave of emotion. Mostly, I don't say it because I know as soon as I say the words out loud, all the other words will leave my head and the talk we need to have will stop because I cannot vocalise all the things I really want to say. So yes, we need to. But whether we will or not is something else entirely. I was so moved with her honesty and her bravery and I just felt incredibly sad hearing what she said. And then I thought, well, I can't just I can't just do a piece of cartoon music because that is so not what she was describing and I needed to really honour what she was saying. So I wrote a second piece of music, a more dramatic straight, emotional piece of music that was not in any way like a cartoon. I wanted to use elements of the music that I'd used in the comic piece so that the pieces were sort of akin to each other. So the music kind of is almost shared but treated very, very differently in each piece. And I also wanted it to be really emotional. And that felt seriously risky and quite nerve-wracking, I guess. Because when you write a really emotional piece of music, well, there's nowhere to hide, is there? Anyway, here's the serious version of We Need to Talk About Our Relationship.
Feeling quite calm and content at the moment. There's quite a lot of music in there, but it's very lonely. Melancholy. It's jarring a bit. Something not quite right. So I've listened through to this once without talking because I want to, I didn't want to miss anything. So I have got a general impression, but I'm just going to play it again and comment as it's going. Oh, when Steve said that, I felt so nervous. When he said, I'm going to comment as I listen. Oh, I was a bit terrified, like my homework was about to be marked. Which I guess is actually kind of the point. But still terrifying. Trust me. I don't really know why, but I sort of picture... You know, one of those sort of big New York apartments that probably cost like $30 million or something. But they're huge, lots of rooms. And I sort of see two people, but they're not in the same space. Maybe, I don't know, the idea of a big apartment is possibly triggered a little bit by the amount of reverb on the piano. It seems like it's got a vast sort of space to echo around in. I've just listened to the music and I do actually love it. And so I made some notes, I listened to it twice. And the second time I made some notes as I went on to make sure I was sure of what I was going to say. So Again with the nerves when Shelley said so. It's like she had a massive list. Got very inflamed. Very frenzied. But now there's this sort of like, there's this almost calm reflection. Yeah, two people. It's a bit like my mum and dad, actually. Christ, they really needed to talk about their relationship. Listening to Taff, I was so struck by how much people were bringing of their own experiences to the music. How somehow, when you listen to music, it unlocks memories within you. And I hadn't fully appreciated just how much of ourselves we project onto a piece of music. Thinking about my own favourite pieces, you know, obviously there's evocative memories spring to mind when I hear it and when I heard it the first time, what I was thinking, what I was feeling, where I was up to in my life. But I was surprised by the idea that even before people heard music, they were going through that process, even before they'd heard a note. That was absolutely fascinating to me. It was probably quite formative on me, but it was hard work watching them towards the end of their lives, the last 10, 15 years of their existence together. Because they were both born in the sort of late 1920s, and they were very much, you know, you got married, and that's that's your lot. But yeah, they lived in a bungalow. He lived at one end, and she lived at the other. They'd come together occasionally in the kitchen, but he'd, like, prepare himself a salad and she'd make herself something. They didn't necessarily eat at the same time. Even that had gone a bit. Uh, And it was just a dreadful, dreadful lack of communication. They didn't, you know, there was no rowing, there was no hate. It was just, we don't love each other anymore. Which was fucking horrible to look at when you sort of 20, you know, you'd go home and they'd be a perfectly happy front. But then my dad would go off and watch golf in the lounge and my mum would go off and watch David Attenborough in the back bedroom. And it was like sort of dust settling. And again, hearing Taff, I was so struck that people are moved to talk about their own experiences when they start to link it with music, that music somehow... The concept of music, just the anticipation of music, gets people to an emotional place that they wouldn't 
normally go to, that they wouldn't perhaps quite so easily go to? It sort of starts off, I mean, it's fairly sort of poignant, but it's got a bit of a melody in there that makes me think of, it's, it's quite a pleasant melody. So that sort of makes me think of, um, of maybe good, good memories. So I think that really works because these are people that have had a relationship. So they're thinking about maybe the good times. I sort of went to a New York apartment, two people occasionally, you know, moving around reasonably close to each other um, and saying, do you know where my overcoat is? Yes, it's blah, blah, blah. But then because of the frost, you don't want to break the frost and find out what's underneath. You have to if you hold yourself in any regard. I like the gloomy, threatening, uneasy Starks. It makes me feel like something bad. The conversation is going to be a bad conversation. And hearing Shelley talk about gloominess, I wondered if people would start to reflect on their own negative experiences and memories. And they did, to my great surprise. It was a curious one, because it was all happy and I would have been quite okay with it sort of going on into old age, if you like. But I found it harder and harder to say, I love you, because I didn't. But it is quite tense, and it does sort of make me have dread of what's coming. And then pretty pretty soon after that, it does turn quite painful. So, yeah, you're sort of like your worst fears are are actually true. (laughs) They do actually come true. And by the end, it's pretty horrible and uncomfortable which is exactly what that sort of conversation probably is. <laughs> but what I'm interested to know is, were you planning, were you thinking about an actual conversation? Was there like a, a scripted conversation that you were almost sort of providing the soundtrack to? So was, was it like thinking, well, there would be a little bit of talking about this, but then after a while, one party, probably the party that's been summoned to this relationship, they get the growing realisation that it's turning sour. And so that's a gradual increase uh, as it goes through. And then there's a few stabs that I would imagine are probably quite a hurtful statement, quite an unexpected hurtful statement that maybe one of the people has been holding on to for quite a long time and then they're letting it go, they're letting it out there and the other person is quite shocked by that. So, well, that's what that's how it makes me feel anyway. Yeah, I think I think this nails it. Well, Steve rumbled me. Yes, I did have a script going on in my head. I had actual dialogue going on in my head. I had a situation and I knew what this couple were arguing about. But I'm not going to tell you because it would just spoil it. It would spoil the mystery and it would spoil the music, your experience of the music, because then it would be more about me and what I meant rather than leaving it as a clean slate so you can... Imagine your own stuff on top of the music. I just don't want to spoil it for people. But yes, there were actual words in my head when I was writing it. And she came in and I said, are you all right? You okay? And she just sort of went, yeah, but I'm leaving. (laughs) We'd not discussed this. It wasn't on the agenda. 
then I like that the violin comes in and it because it feels like it's like flowing in conversation. It does feel like it's a somebody talking and it's all very it's a flow of a chat. Then about 40 seconds where the second one comes in, it feels like it's like a battle against like two violins, like two people having a battle against each other, a bit of a bit of an argument. And then I love the pause at about 50 seconds and the like the crescendo and the rise feels like a crucial point in the conversation. So yeah, those couple of weeks after she said that and she had to sort of find somewhere to go and rent, that was a lot of wandering around in separate spaces in my house. Because, you know, you could just fill the dishwasher or you could have a session of peeling away layers like a onion that's just going to get more rancid with every layer. We're just listening to it again now. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the melody comes back, but there's absolutely no hope at all at the end. That is just, you know, they're resigned to it. They're resigned to it finishing. Yeah. No, I really like that. I think that's great. I think that absolutely nails uh, the, the the dread of that sort of conversation. And it's about three minutes long, which is about it's about how long that conversation would probably need to be for me, because you wouldn't want that going on for too long. Would would you know? Once you've realised, oh well, this is the end, then you really, really why uh, why continue it any longer? <laughs> and then when it comes back in, it feels sad, like they've had a sad conversation, but that they also feel sad about the conversation. It feels like they're more in harmony about the discussion, even if it is something that they're not particularly happy with. It did feel like it got slightly heated again, just before two minutes 20, when it pauses again and that another crescendo, which I just, I actually, I bloody love that, where it pauses and stops. And then I feel like it comes back even sadder. So for me, it feels like the whole conversation, it's an end of a relationship, but they both know it's the right thing, even though it's a sad thing. But they both know that they shouldn't be together, is how I feel about the whole thing. Oh, that was a journey, wasn't it? Yeah, a lot of loneliness in that piece. But I still see two people technically in the same place. When I sent my friend Helen the audio to the emotional, serious version of this piece, she sent me some audio which, again, blew me away. I found the violin quite jarring at first. And I thought that it was quite intrusive. And then I was listening to the piano plodding along, steady in the background. And I thought to myself that the violin was actually trying to say something. There was lots of soaring and weaving in and out of the piano that just plodded along in the background, with the occasional snap from both the piano and the violin. What struck me was that they were rarely working together or in unison. And the saddest part, the saddest part was the violin at the end fading away on its own with no piano. And that made me cry. I felt so privileged that she'd shared this audio with me, that she'd had this reaction to my stuff. And I was just so grateful. I was grateful to everyone who shared their audio and took the time to listen to my stuff and send me all, all their little clips. I really do have some ace mates. If you enjoyed this episode of the title track, hit subscribe and please leave us a review, hopefully a lovely one, and tell your mates about us. 
Massive thanks to everyone who contributed to this podcast and to my fabulous music teacher, the award-winning composer, Tom Harold. This podcast was produced by Rick Watson and all the music was written by me, Emma Clark. There's loads of extra info in the show notes along with links to some resources, so do check them out. We have another podcast about music you might like, Before the Bar Opens. I interview a wide range of people who make, use and love music. I find out about their musical lives and ask them what they have to do to make their music happen. Before the Bar Opens is a podcast that's all about what happens before the music starts. There'll be another episode of the title track along soon. Thanks very much for listening. See you next time.